over the night of April the 25th and the 26th, 1986, the Chernobyl nuclear power station, which was in the then Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine, during a safety test that was being conducted as the prelude to a routine maintenance shutdown in reactor number four, which was the fourth and most sophisticated of uh, four reactors at the plant, an accident took place in which the reactor began to run out of control and exploded. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Adam Higginbotham. His narrative, nonfiction, and feature writing has appeared in magazines including GQ, The New Yorker, and The New York Times Magazine. He's the former U.S. correspondent for the Sunday Telegraph magazine and editor-in-chief of The Face. He is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster, which he's here to talk to us about today. It was a steam explosion, which destroyed the reactor core, blew the biological shield, the lid off the reactor. Then it seems highly likely there was a second explosion, possibly caused by hydrogen released during the course of the destruction of the reactor. And between them, these two explosions completely destroyed the roof and upper levels of the reactor building, releasing a colossal amount of radioactive debris and radioactive vapor into the atmosphere and into the area around the power plant. Um, the reactor immediately caught fire and burned for at least 10 days. And um, the core of the reactor simultaneously went into a full meltdown. Um, and this was and remains the worst nuclear accident in history. So there was a lot about this event that I knew about after it happened. So I had some understanding of the international scale and the discussion from that. Obviously, uh, I knew some information about the extent of the fallout, the extent of the radiation that was there, that uh, the nearby um, town of Pripyat, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. Is that correct? I think that is correct. I, no Ukrainian has ever corrected me on how I pronounce it, and you just said it how I say it. Great. So at least I'm. I've got. I've got people with me who pronounce it the same way. That's helpful. Just um, at least me. Yes. <laughs> I know. I knew that that uh, town had been evacuated and is now uh, basically abandoned, um, and has been abandoned ever since. So I had some idea of what had happened after. But what I realized while reading your book is I really had no conception of what led up to this event or what contributed to this event. And there's a whole lot there to unpack. So I would really like to, I think, start with talking a little bit about um, just what life was like in the Soviet Union when these reactors in this particular reactor was built in the 70s and 80s, because that really is a huge part of how and why this happened. Um. Yeah, and, and that was really one of the things that, that I was most concerned to explore when I began reporting the book. Um, because, I, I, you know, so many accounts and popular conceptions of, of what happened with the accident, you know, concentrate simply on the night of the explosion um, and never really told the stories of those people involved or indeed, as, as you say, the sort of the long chain of events that led up to the accident in the first place. Um, and it was, uh, you know, certainly from, from our perspective now, more than 30 years later, the Soviet Union 
in the the mid to late 80s was an extremely weird place to live and, and in its way it was as, as you know as kind of foreign to western readers as as 19th century chicago or you know a, a whale town in in um in uh the 18th century um so i guess what what uh the most important thing to to explain is that you know the people who worked at the plant and and were accommodated in Pripyat, which was this atom grad, this atomic town that was built specifically to accommodate them. You know, they were the sort of best and brightest of the of the Soviet civilian nuclear industry. And and the Chernobyl plant was a was a magnet for specialists from all over the Soviet Union. Um, and so, you know, there's a there's a sort of there's a popular idea that, that was certainly uh encouraged by um, Soviet propaganda after the accident, that the people that worked at the Chernobyl plant were, were, were kind of ham-fisted and incompetent and didn't know what they were doing. And that's actually far from the truth. You know, a lot of people arrived there um, straight from technical schools and, and uh, universities where they were extremely well-educated in, in reactor physics um, and in the theory of what they had to, they had to do. But at the same time, Soviet nuclear technology was not actually very sophisticated, and um, and as a result of the the wish to to catch up with Western nuclear technology and and certainly the you know the deployment of civilian nuclear technology, uh, there was a lot of corner cutting both in the design and construction of uh, of nuclear reactors, and um, so the people that went to work at the plant. You know, um, had a lot of a lot of faulty equipment, a lot of poorly designed equipment, a lot of kind of of unreliable systems to handle, and they were not kept fully informed really about all the things that were wrong with the reactors that they were using. And when we we talk about things that were wrong with the reactors, I was really shocked to hear about the design flaws that had been built into the reactor. Um, obviously, not necessarily intentionally, but also <coughs> not blindly either. There, there was some understanding of an idea of sacrificing safety for efficiency or for cost at various points along the way, because there were a couple of big flaws in this reactor that hugely contributed to this disaster. Well, there are a lot of flaws with the reactor. Um, I mean, starting with the fact that that the principles uh, on which the reactor design was based, uh, you know, originated with a with a military plutonium production reactor, um, which had uh, incipient flaws in it that um, when they scaled the reactor up to generate electricity, which increased the the um, pressure and temperature tolerances uh, that the reactor would operate under, you know, only grew worse. So you you start from a baseline in which the reactor was 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 uh, unstable in normal operation, and then on top of that, when they they began designing the specific reactor, they inadvertently introduced a whole series of of design flaws. Um, that actually they began to discover soon after the first one went into operation in the early 70s, but then either slow walked or failed to rectify and in some cases attempted to 
to cover up. There are some of these design flaws, and I'm thinking particularly of some of the changes that were made to the control rods that had a huge impact in Chernobyl. Um, can you talk a little bit about what they did or what was done with the control rods as a sort of example of one of the flaws built into this reactor that really contributed to the problem? Well, the control rod problem is is, is really the kind of the, the last and, and, and most uh, deadly of the design flaws in the reactor. So there, there were lots of other ones, you know, including, for example, the fact that the emergency control rod system was designed deliberately to move slowly because the um, the architects of the reactor didn't believe that they were ever going to really need to shut down the reactor incredibly quickly. And it would sort of, you know, it was going to be bad news for the for the Soviet uh, power grid if you took a reactor offline too quickly. Um but the, the the most fundamental and 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 kind of terrifying um, design flaw with the control rods was that you know obviously they were designed to the control rods in the nuclear reactor are designed to to quench the uh, fission reaction inside the reactor core as they're inserted um, and the problem with these control rods is that in order to save money and make the reactor operation more efficient. The tips of the control rods were designed in such a way that for a few fractions of a second after the rods were first inserted, instead of decreasing uh, the chain reaction inside the, the chain reaction in, inside the core, they would briefly increase reactivity inside the core. So it was as if the brakes and accelerator of a car had been wired in reverse. You're driving down the road, something leaps out in front of you, you stamp on the brakes to to stop the car, but instead of slowing down, something leaps forward. Um, and it was that that was the final um, proximate cause of the explosion that destroyed the reactor. This is one of the ones that really surprised me, um, as well as just... It surprised me that it had been built like this as a kind of way to make the reactor more efficient. So kind of the trade-off of safety to efficiency, but also then that that decision didn't seem to be permeated down through to the people who really need to know that information, uh, especially in an emergency situation when you're when you're trying to stop something. Um, you'd expect if that trade-off had been made that that information would be passed down to the operators at at the plants so that they can at least be aware that if they bang on the stop button for that split second, you're going to get, like you said, the accelerator going on before it hits the brakes. That that feels like something, if you're going to make the trade-off, that you should let people know you've made that trade-off. Right. But this, this, I mean, you're absolutely right in, in theory. But, you know, when you look at it in detail, you realize that, that Chernobyl has a great deal in common with pretty much any other major technological catastrophe that we know about from history, you know, including this, the Titanic sinking, the Challenger disaster, and the, you know, the most recent problem with the, you know, uh, Boeing jet crashes with, with the control system effectively crashing the plane, um, despite the fact that the pilots are struggling to save it. You know, it, 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 it's a series of faults. It's a chain of problems any one of which on its own will not cause a catastrophic failure. But under the rare circumstances that each one of these faults lines up in a deadly confluence, 
then you're going to have a severe accident. And, you know, like any one of these other uh, major technological catastrophes, you know, the designers thought, well, this on its own, and they were right, you know, the control rod or the tip, the control rod tip problem on its own is, is not enough to, to cause a catastrophic accident. If it was just that, then the brief increase in reactivity that results when you insert the controls for a full shutdown, you know, that would not cause an explosion. They knew about it because it had happened in other reactors of this type elsewhere in the Soviet Union previously, and it had been logged by the technicians who were doing the shutdown. And they, you know, passed their information upstairs, and the designers had said, well, okay, I mean, maybe at some point in the future we'll be able to, to rectify this. It's worth noting. And, you know, they did... I spoke to one uh, reactor engineer who worked in nuclear safety at Chernobyl. He said, well, yeah, I think in 1983 we did receive like a technical note about, um, about the fact that there could be an increase in reactivity for a few fractions of a second when you insert all the control rods simultaneously. But, you know, but they had, you know, a whole welter of these kind of technical instructions they're receiving all the time because the fact was that the rbnk reactor was so poorly designed and there were so many problems with it and its designers were so reluctant to admit any of these problems and so keen to conceal them that instead of rectifying any given one of them what they would do is they would add like a technical note to the operating manual for the reactor so that they were relying on the the reactor control engineers who operated the reactor to, to follow all of these instructions to the letter. And, and essentially, this is what they said afterwards. You know, when they tried to blame the, the reactor operators for the disaster, you know, the, the, the heads of the respective departments of the, the civilian nuclear industry and the, and the Ministry of Medium Machine Building, which ran the atom weapons program, you know, tried to say, well, if only they'd followed all the rules, this would never have happened. They broke these rules. Um, but, you know, but no reasonable person could expect any given individual to follow all of these rules, civil, you know, all at the same time, particularly when the instruction manuals did not explain or contextualize any of the reasons why a single one of these rules might have been important. The manuals did not say, don't do this, because otherwise there's a chance the reactor will explode and, and you know, you and all your friends could die. Uh, they would just say, you know, don't do this. Or you should be aware that if you insert all the control rods at the same time, there may be a momentary increase in reactivity within the core. Um, so, so what happened is that in the end, you know, the, the reactor operators at the at Chernobyl's Unit 4 were unlucky enough to have made a series of, of, of operating mistakes that all lined up in such a way that if they then, at the end of all of these mistakes this extremely unlikely series of errors um, attempted to shut the reactor down by inserting all of the emergency control rods simultaneously. Then the reactor would explode. And, and that's exactly what happened. I was also really struck by the widespread culture of misrepresenting information to superiors in order to meet things like unrealistic targets or in order to um, ostensibly prevent panic. But I really was struck by over and over how that culture in the Soviet Union at this time made clearly made a lot of this worse. There were quite often unrealistic targets that people had to hit for either testing or construction or repair um, that that just made everything so much more difficult. And there seemed to be this 
this culture at that time of you don't speak truth to the person above you, you just kind of yes them in hopes of getting a, a promotion or in hopes of not getting into trouble. Absolutely. I mean, um, I mean, that's that's part of the problem with this idea that you could, you know, you could regulate the um, the reactor into an area of, of nuclear safety. Um, is that, you know, at this time in the Soviet Union in particular, you were really kind of through the looking glass into this, into this world of, of almost total unreality in which, uh, the facts bore very little resemblance to what anybody was saying. And everybody had this kind of, uh, you know, dual track system on, in, on which they operated where they would be saying one thing, um, whether it be about, their belief in the ideology of communism or, you know, the way in which the reactor was generating electricity and what they knew to be the case on the other hand. Um, you know, I mean, the, 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 and this, as you say, this was, this was endemic to the Soviet system. So people were constantly misrepresenting the truth. They were constantly lying upwards, but they could rely on the fact that they knew that everybody was lying upwards and that, that everybody sort of on some level recognised that they were all they were all misrepresenting what what reality was, and because they lived in a in a world of, of industrial strength and reality, to the extent that you know, I, I think I give this example in the book that um, you know the the economic mandarins at Gosplan, the the Central Economic Planning Authority in Moscow, you know, began to recognise that the the figures that they were gathering from all of the different um, outposts of the Soviet Union were were so inaccurate and so founded on untruth and, and fabrication that eventually the KGB had to turn their own spy satellites onto the cotton fields in Kazakhstan in order to try and get some real sense of, of what the scale of the cotton harvest was because because otherwise all the information they were getting was 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 untrue. I really felt like this fed into the problems of the immediate response to Chernobyl while reading your book, because it seemed like at every step up the chain, there was this resistance to believe the person below them about how bad it really was. It felt like every time it got it got pushed up one level, that the real severity of what had happened, that a thing had actually exploded, that the reactor was severely compromised, that the ceiling had been blown off the building, like every single step uh, that it went up the chain, the first reaction was always like, no, that can't be, I don't believe it, I have to see it for myself. And it, it seems to me like that kind of culture only made that problem worse. I think that's true. I mean, this the kind of the you know institutionalized lying um, of the Soviet state combined with the reflexive secrecy certainly worsened almost every aspect of what happened. But um, but there's something else that that, I, that is going on here that I think is very important that I only realised when I began talking to people who were there at the time, which is that um, and I think this is also common to to similar accidents elsewhere. Um, is that that the enormity of what happened was was so great and the scale of the catastrophe so overwhelming that even the specialists who were there at the time found it impossible to comprehend that it was really happening and that the scale of what had happened was was as it presented itself to them in front of their eyes. So, you know, Victor Burhanov, the director of the plant, you know, subsequently was was frequently faulted for um 
you know, underestimating the scale of the radiation release for apparently sending his underlings into areas of, of, um, of extreme danger uh, without any consideration for their health and, and apparently callously, you know, sending people to their deaths. Um, but the truth is, I, I think that he just he just couldn't believe he simply couldn't believe that the that this accident had happened on this scale that, that it did because he'd spent so many years being told that such a catastrophic accident and a nuclear plant was simply impossible. And the, you know, there's another account of um, this guy, Boris Prashinsky, who was the leader of this uh, nuclear accident task force that was sent down from Moscow on actually their first ever assignment. It was the first time they'd ever been called out. Um, this group that was dedicated to dealing with accidents at nuclear power stations. And he was one of the first people to overfly the reactor in a helicopter the, the afternoon after the explosion. And he describes in his memoir that, that he looked out of the window of the helicopter into the glowing reactor core that was visible from the air, even in bright sunlight. And he had to force himself to believe what his brain refused to comprehend. It's fascinating that there's... Uh, there seems to be a, a complex mix of the wider culture of the Soviet Union at the time, but also just a, a sense of extremes that the human brain has difficulty comprehending that play here. Exactly. I mean, it, it's 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 pretty hard to imagine this accident playing out this way in, in any other circumstances, in any other place, at any other time in history. I think it really is a kind of it's a uniquely Soviet. Uh, disaster. Do you think that just the nature of the danger here as well makes it perhaps even harder for our brain to recognize? Because when we're talking about radiation, it's not something like like a fire where you can feel the heat instantly. Um, you can't sort of, after the initial explosion, you can't visibly kind of see the effect of the extreme amounts of radiation on the world around you. So it, it does have an invisible feel that I, I can only imagine must contribute to the sense of disbelief at what you're seeing. Yeah, I think that, that, that you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's at once why radiation is so terrifying, but it's also why it's so easy to be um, reckless around, I think. Um, you know, and the, the part of the reason that there was this, this almost endemic recklessness around the risks of radiation um, was because it came down from the top. You know, Efim Slavsky, who was the head of the Ministry of Media and Machine Building, and, and Anatoly Alexandrov, who was the head of the Kurchatov Institute of Atomic Energy, these two, you know, twinned uh, octogenarian mandarins of the nuclear state in the Soviet Union, had both had, you know, long experience with radiation and both, you know, adopted this very reckless attitude where they thought, well, I've had 200 rem of exposure, I can, and I just drink it away. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, a lot of people involved in the industry held that view. Um, and then, you know, on the other hand, you, you've got people who were simply ignorant. There were the, these accounts of, of uh, soldiers who were sent in during the cleanup who would just be kind of leaning on their armored personnel carriers, stripped to the waist, smoking cigarettes in the sunshine, you know, right near the still open reactor core. Because, as you say, you couldn't you can't see it or taste it. Um, and you, so if, if you're not paying attention and you're not really listening to what people are telling you, then it's easy to, to not really comprehend the dangers that are all around you. 
And we're talking about kind of extreme amounts of radiation, in particular in a few areas around um, the reactor that exploded. Uh, there were, do we have some understanding of what type of radiation level was in places like the roof of the reactor um, right after the explosion? Uh, we do. Because, because apart from anything else, measurements were, you know, the, the debris that remained on the reactor roofs, or the, the roofs of the reactor buildings um, in the immediate aftermath of the explosion, you know, that stayed there for months afterwards. And when they began to, to try and clear that debris up, one of the first things they did was to, was to go up there and, and attempt to take radiation readings. So we, we do have a pretty good idea of, of how intense those, those fields of gamma radiation certainly were. Um, you know, and it ranged up into thousands of rods in an hour, which is which is enough to uh, sustain a lethal dose in in less than five minutes. That to me really is something that's so difficult to imagine. And as you go through in the book, the the massive cleanup efforts to try and once the kind of immediate danger is passed, the kind of immediate fires are put out, um, and there were of course losses sustained in that in that immediate kind of first responder, but in the cleanup effort, the sheer logistics of having to clean up the debris and try and make the area safer or stable, because obviously you don't want the thing exploding again, um, right. making it stable, um, the, the massive amount of logistics of you can only have any particular person spend, say, two or three minutes in the space. And then it's not like you can send them back next week. At that point, they're, they're effectively done for life, right? Right. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why these, you know, these figures of the number of, of men and women involved in what they call the liquidation, the cleanup after the, the explosion itself are so, seem so enormous and unbelievable. It's, you know, like, 500 to 600,000 people uh, went through the zone and were involved in the liquidation. And part of the reason for this is that, that you know, as, as one of the military commanders involved in the operation told me, you know, you, you, can't, you can't send people in to, to work for long periods of time with the result that a task that might take a, a one man an hour digging a ditch, for example, you know, in some areas suddenly you've got to have 60 men going in for one minute each just to dig a ditch because if you send them in for any longer, then, you know, their health is going to be compromised or ruined or they could die subsequently from their radiation exposure. It's just an insane amount of logistics. Like I can't, I can't even fathom really how that would have worked on the day. I'm sure those people just, the, the people who are responsible for how many men do we have today? What's the order in which the men are going to do? How are we going to kind of create this terrible, um, assembly line of cleanup. It just, I have difficulty wrapping my brain around the logistics of that. Well, we should also say that, you know, to be, to be honest, it's pretty unlikely that in a circumstance like that, um, they would have sent 60 men in for a minute each. You know, they probably sent two men in for half an hour each, and those two guys are probably very sick now as a result. I mean, you know, you, you, I spoke to to enough people who, who made it clear that there wasn't really uh, particularly close attention paid to what each individual was sustaining in terms of radiation dose. I mean, partly because certainly in the initial phase of the cleanup, in the first few weeks after the explosion, they didn't have the dosimetric equipment there to take those measurements. So what they would do is they would send a platoon of men in to do a job, and one man would have uh, 
dosimeter with him. And then they would base everybody's exposure on the exposure that his dosimeter recorded, regardless of where those other men had been. Um, everybody would get the same dose. So, you know, it was, it was, it was far from accurate. Did any effort to use robots actually work for any significant amount of time during this cleanup process? Well, this is one of the aspects of, of the liquidation, certainly, that, that I was particularly interested in because, you know, I'd read accounts before I started reporting the book, you know, where they would say, well, yes, the robots went in and then, you know, they failed in the fields of radiation. Um, and I just thought, well, really? I mean, I know radiation is really scary and mysterious and stuff, but does it, does it really have this effect on, on electronics? Um, that seems kind of far-fetched. Uh, but it turns out that it's not, and uh, and it, it does have that effect on on semiconductors in particular. Um, and actually, I asked one of the guys in charge of one of the, the major parts of the cleanup operation. I said, "Well, so how many of these um, how many of these robots worked? Did, did um, how effective was the the robot cleanup operation?" He said, "Well, none of them worked. They all failed, um, and they failed for different reasons. Some failed because the the electronics failed." Um, and some of the robots which had electronics which were hardened against radiation exposure. I think that they, they adapted some of these robots that had originally been designed for use on the surface of the moon. And I think I'm right in saying that those ones, you know, were protected against, uh, cosmic radiation. So they were slightly hardened. But those, um, those robots that, that did not fail because of radiation failed just because the debris fields were so, complex and so chaotic that their wheels or their tracks got you know tangled up in abandoned fire hoses or bits of graphite blocks and those stopped working as well so in the end you know the truth was that that none of the robotic equipment worked sometimes uh we're we're definitely not at a place yet where we can make something to do this work for us and i find it quite interesting that even in a sort of high-tech space of that era? I mean, was there somewhere more high-tech potentially than a, a nuclear reactor that we ended up having to really rely on pure muscle power in order to get some of this work done? I find that really fascinating. Well, I mean, after the accident, uh, the Japanese did begin a program to develop robotic equipment to deal with um, radiation accidents, uh, but they eventually abandoned that program because they just thought it was never going to be necessary with the result that um, after the Fukushima accident, uh, they had to do exactly the same thing as the Soviet government did, which is they sent robots in, the robots didn't work, so then they had to send men in to do the cleanup instead. And I think that uh, I was reading a report just a couple of weeks ago that they have now finally sent in robotic equipment to deal with um, the uh, used fuel pond in Fukushima. And and that apparently is the first successful, you know, robotic attempt to clean this stuff up. And that's, that's so recent. I was going to say that. So that's, you know, 33 years later. Wow. Um, I want to also talk a little bit about some of the efforts that were done afterwards. So the reactor has exploded. We have the initial kind of first pass at first response finished. Uh, we've put out all the, the obvious fires. Um, and then there's the next kind of stage of this, which is now we have to, cause, the, cause at this point, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's still something happening inside the reactor itself. It's not, you know, everything's not sort of quote unquote off. There's still potentially <laughs> a risk associated here, even though all the hypothetical fires are put out. 
um, yeah, which point are you talking about? Because this kind of the, that phase goes on for an extremely long time, really. Essentially, because they don't know what's going on inside. I mean, there's a lot of kind of there's a lot of terrifying theories, but but no hard facts. So I know which bit are you talking about? For the period of time in particular, I was thinking about when they're using helicopters to try and, I guess, quell the reaction or help prevent or slow the reactions that are happening inside the reactor. Um, and oh, they, right. they heavily used helicopters in order to help them out with this. Right. So, so what happened is, is that, uh, as you say, all the visible fires, uh, which were on, were actually not within the, the reactor building itself were not within the reactor core itself, but were chiefly on the the roofs of surrounding buildings where where blazing debris had fallen as a result of the explosion. Those fires were put out by a firefighting staff. There were fires inside uh, the reactor buildings, which were put out by uh, the plant staff themselves. Um, and then what remained was was burning graphite inside the reactor itself. And um, and the possibility they felt at that time of a core meltdown. So at that point, um, on the Sunday, the explosion took place very early in, in the small hours of Saturday morning. And so on Sunday morning, they began making experimental flights over the the ruins of the reactor building to try and drop uh, sand, boron, lead, and clay into the open reactor space um, in an attempt to both put out this fire, to cool down the reactor core to head off a meltdown, and to head off the possibility of a further uncontrolled fission reaction starting again in what remained of the, uh, of the reactor core if, as they feared, um, the elements of the reactor core had been rearranged in the course of the explosion in a way that, that, that the geometry would permit for fission to begin again, but in a way this time that they had no control over at all. So am I right in understanding that at this time, the decision to effectively fly helicopters over um, a roof that's torn apart so they can see down kind of into where the reactor is, and at this point, the reactor lid from the explosion has kind of off-kiltered, right? So it's not sitting on top. And they effectively have men like pushing out sandbags and things into what they hope will land inside the reactor. Um, was that, was that effectively <laughs> yes. like a blind hope? Like maybe this will work? Did they, they sort of know what they were throwing it into? Um, well, you've raised an interesting question, which is that, that, you know, one of the sort of the legends of the, of the Chernobyl disaster, which, you know, received, uh, significant push as, as an element of the propaganda campaign that the Soviet state mounted in the weeks after the explosion is that, you know, these, uh, first of all, the, the, the courageous firefighters who went out onto the roofs of the surrounding buildings to put out initial fires, and then the helicopter pilots who flew these missions over the buildings, um, you know, saved the Soviet Union, saved the world. Um, and the fact is that this helicopter effort was was really conducted chiefly so that the Soviet Union could be seen to be doing something about the accident. And in truth, although these men were extremely brave and and carried out this operation in quite unimaginable circumstances, 
the work that they were conducting was, it seems in retrospect from the scientific examination of the debris in the years afterwards, almost completely pointless. Um, and you're right, initially, they had no sort of targeting equipment or no delivery system to try and get these 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 bags of sand and bags of boron into the reactor core. They were flying over you know, several hundred meters above the reactor, and they they just had to open the door of the helicopter and physically heft these sixty kilo bags of sand out of the door of the helicopter and try and get them into the mouth of this reactor, which was partially covered by the tilted biological shield on the top of the, the the reactor vessel itself, which had been thrown into the air by the explosion and then come to rest at a slight angle, like a sort of like an eyelid on a partly opened eye. So, you know, from all that way up in the air with bags of sand being thrown individually into this partially covered space that was con- partly concealed by the debris and, and by escaping vapor and, you know, not to mention the fact that the helicopter couldn't hover because if they one the the pilot who who led these missions explained to me that if you attempted to hover over this column of heat that was escaping from this blazing nuclear reactor the helicopter would simply fall out of the sky so what they had to do was was to to slow the helicopter down as much as they possibly could and then try and get the bags of sand into the mouth of the reactor as they passed overhead so you can see that this was a pretty tall order even on the face of it, um, you know, let alone the, the kind of the terror and speed that were both involved in, in conducting such op- an operation in such hazardous conditions in the first place. So it, it, it didn't really work out. And ultimately, the scientists who examined the scene in the years afterwards found little evidence that, that much of this material, sand, lead, or on any of it, ever made its way into the reactor itself. So in addition to the worry and potential problems of creating a a new sort of nuclear fission reaction, um, obviously that is a problem, uh, a potential smaller but still serious uh, chance for an explosion um, having to do with uh, superheating water effectively. You get like a steam explosion. Um, yep. That's a problem. But another huge problem and huge concern during the kind of initial few weeks of of dealing with this this issue or this um, explosion and the problems at Chernobyl was there was a massive threat to the groundwater potentially. And that has ramifications as potentially as severe or maybe more severe as throwing the nuclear um, debris up into the air from an explosion. That was something I definitely hadn't really considered. Right. Because the, the, the power plant was built not really that far above the, the water table for the river Pripyat, which, which ran beside the plant and was necessary for cooling water. Um, and then the Pripyat was a tributary of the Dnieper and the Dnieper, you know, fed the Kievan Sea, the, the reservoir, the artificially created reservoir that supplied Kiev with all its drinking water. And the Dnieper, you know, this is like, I can't remember exactly. I think it's the sixth largest river in Europe, but it supplied drinking water to a, a huge proportion of Ukraine. And then, of course, flows out into the Black Sea. So they were very, and I think justifiably afraid that if the meltdown continued and the the corium uh, that was created in the wake of the explosion, this kind of molten 
uh, formation of, of melted nuclear fuel, melted concrete, um, and sand, you know, burned its way through the foundation plate of the, the, the base plate of the reactor and then through the foundations of the building and escaped into the earth beneath the plant. And it would indeed contaminate the water table and the, the consequences of this were almost unimaginable. So do we have any idea looking back from where we are now, how close this was to reality? I mean, obviously there wasn't this kind of disastrous level of, of groundwater contamination, but do we have some ability now to look back and see how close we actually came to that reality? Well, the thing was that, 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 um, in the wake of the Three Mile Island accident and meltdown in, in Pennsylvania in 1979, Western nuclear scientists had done an awful lot of studies on the possibilities of what could happen in the case of a, of a core meltdown in a nuclear reactor. But the Soviet scientists had not bothered to do any of this. So part of the many of the problems that were caused in the Chernobyl accident were caused by ignorance of what the potential results of the accident would be and what the possible consequences would be. And so in almost all circumstances, they were taking the most conservative approach they possibly could. Uh, so, you know, I, I spoke to one of the scientists who worked on the computer modeling that they had to do, you know, at enormous speed in the wake of the accident to try and figure out whether or not it was physically possible for this molten fuel to burn its way through the several layers of, of concrete, reinforced concrete that lay beneath the reactor core, um, the reactor vessel in unit four. And they, their calculations were that there was a one in 10 chance that, that that could happen. So although they were constantly being reassured by the guys from the Ministry of Media Machine Building, who took a much more reckless and, and as far as they were concerned, realistic approach, to nuclear accidents who just assured them this was never this was never possible and it was all science fiction that would never happen. Um, they said, well, you know, we've got to we've got to take measures immediately to prevent this from happening because there's a there's a there's a there's a ten percent chance that you could be facing a complete meltdown and that that this stuff is hot enough and will be persistently hot enough to just burn through the the concrete foundations of the building and then you know. We're going to be in real trouble. Um, however, subsequent research has shown that this was almost never going to happen. What did happen was that the complex system of plumbing beneath the reactor that was part of one of the primary safety systems of the reactor um, provided a path for this corium to find its way through the lower areas of, of the reactor building. So it did burn its way through part of the um, base plate that, that lay beneath the reactor, part of the, the, the biological shield, and indeed absorbed material like some kind of creature with a mind of its own um, or some monster in a 50s science fiction movie. Uh, it did absorb the, that material and it did keep burning downwards, but its chief path towards the basement rooms and towards the foundations of the building was to go through these pipes. And so ultimately it did find its way to within, you know, a, a few centimeters of, of the earth itself and was ultimately stopped and cooled in a puddle of water, um, on the very last level of the building. 
but I don't think that it could have been physically possible for it to have burned its way all the way through the last layer of the building um, into the water table. Still, it's one of those things that really makes you go, ah, ah. <laughs> I oh, yeah. I mean, and, and the, the, the calculations that the, that the guys from the Kochatov Institute did, you know, they were, they were well-founded fears that they had that this was possible. And it's taken a long time for, for physicists to establish that it probably wasn't possible. Speaking of the, the water table concerns, there, there's obviously one big feature of this disaster that I think is important given the time period we're talking about and the player we're talking about here, which is the Soviet Union in the mid eighties is just the international relations aspect of this. Um, because it was such a huge disaster that threw effectively, you know, nuclear material into the atmosphere, radioactive material that then as a cloud kind of shifted outside the Soviet Union's territory into international territories. Um, obviously, this is not something that the Soviet Union, given the scale of it, was going to be able to deny or keep quiet on an international scale for very long. And indeed, uh, that became a, a major part of the politics around this issue was the kind of international facing portion of it. Um, and one of the things I was really struck by was even as they were dealing with and starting to be forced to be more upfront about what had happened to some extent on the international stage, internally, it was still a very different response. The messaging quite often that was outward facing from, from the country and then inward facing to its own people was at times, just vastly different in almost every single way. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, to the extent that that um, they presented a report, they promised a, a full accounting of what had happened to the Inter International Atomic Energy Authority, and they apparently delivered on this with this uh, report that was delivered to the IAEA special meeting in Vienna in August of 1986, at which uh, Valery Legasov from the, the um, Kurchatov Institute spoke uninterrupted for five hours, presenting the findings of this report. Um, however, in the wake of that and the publication of the report in the West, that report remained classified inside the USSR. Um, so that gives you an indication of, of, how, of how differently, uh, you know, information was treated inside and outside the Soviet Union. I think this is also reflected in the decisions to evacuate uh, the nearby town of Pripyat um, and also sort of the framing around those evacuations. I mean, initially, the, one of the reasons that it has become such a a topic or a, a place of, I think, wider cultural fascination around the world um, is because it it is it was abandoned essentially as it was. They didn't, people didn't really have time to pack up anything significant. And also they didn't even really attempt to because they were largely told that they would be returning and probably just in a few days. So a lot of the way that the evacuees were dealt with was also kind of similar. I mean, it was initially just a, a short term precaution and then it became over time a thing that became more permanent. Um, and, and those decisions as well within the USSR were represented very, very differently internally, I'm sure, than they were represented externally. Well, they didn't, um, you know, they'd had serious nuclear accidents before in which in which they had 
just simply not evacuated the local population at all. I mean, and that's one of the discussions that, as part of the discussion that took place um, within the government commission that was sent down to deal with the accident in the, the lead up to the evacuation. Somebody pointed out that after the Kishtin disaster in 1957, which before Chernobyl was the world's worst nuclear accident, um, this was, you know, a, a, a similar thing took place on a smaller scale in which uh, a storage tank of an extremely toxic nuclear waste that was the product of a plutonium processing operation had exploded and launched this pillar of radionuclides over the surrounding countryside. Um, but they insisted that everybody in the town stay put. Um, and so when Chernobyl happened, they, you know, this guy from the Ministry of Health said, well, we never evacuated in 57. Why, why on earth would we be evacu evacuating now? It's just it's simply not necessary. Um, but then they were told, they were, they were led to believe, the citizens of the town were led to believe they'd be back in, in just a few days. And on their part, they had previously lived through, you know, other accidents at the plant. And nothing serious had seemed to result from those. And those accidents had been successfully covered up. So everybody was really, you know, misinformed and under the impression uh, handed down from above that, that everything would be pretty much okay because, you know, nuclear accidents happen and, and nobody ever really gets hurt. Not quite how it turned out in this event, unfortunately. No. So. Looking back at the research that you've done and the people you've talked to in order to create and write this, this history of what happened in Chernobyl and the book that talks through in, in a lot of great detail, um, the time and the place and all of the, the things that contributed to this disaster being what it was both in the lead up and in the attempts to, um, clean up afterwards and resolve the issue. Looking back, what do you think should be our kind of biggest takeaways from what happened in Chernobyl? I've asked this question quite a lot. I think it's because people expect me to say that nuclear power is a terrible thing and that humanity has no business uh, messing around with it. Um, but that's not really the conclusion I drew. Uh, because as I said earlier, I, you know, I, I think that this this accident could only have happened in this way, in this in this in this location, in this point in history. Um, well, I mean, not specifically Chernobyl at any RBMK plant, for example, but you take my point. Um, I think that the, you know, the lessons are, are those of, 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 of humanity's hubris and, um, its approach to technology. I don't think that, um, we think carefully enough about the, the consequences of, of the potential consequences of, of the technologies that we're developing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character says in Jurassic Park, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Mm. Um, uh, and, and I think that, that those are the, the biggest lessons to take away from this is, is that you, you have to develop these things in, in such a way that, that you have to calculate what the worst possible outcomes are going to be. And, you know, not approach them with, with the level of recklessness and, and arrogance that the, that the Soviet authorities did. I mean, I think it's, it's extremely similar to the approach that was taken with, you know, by the White Star Line with the Titanic. They told everybody that, that this ship was unsinkable and they apparently had great confidence that that was true. And similarly, is the Ministry of Meaning Machine Building at the Kachatov Institute, the Soviet 
leaders of the nuclear industry convinced everybody that these reactors were incredibly safe. And, and almost everybody involved in the process believed that. And even the, the, the reactor operators who were accustomed to, to working with these reactors and, and knew that they were bulky and, and difficult to manage and capricious, you know, nonetheless believed on some level that they could be kind of pushed around almost endlessly and nothing really terrible would ever happen. And they kind of, although they were difficult to manage, they nonetheless had mastery of the technology. And I think that, you know, combined obviously with the secrecy and the obfuscation and the lies on which the Soviet state was built, you know, those were the, the problems we really need to look at here. That meshes very well with um, having read the book quite recently. My kind of takeaways from from this story and understanding what happened in a more complete way. Um, I feel like it really reminded me, as you said earlier on in our discussion, of the cumulative effect of of small things that can go wrong or or even larger things that taken in isolation. If they go wrong, it's not too big a deal. We have a contingency, no problem. But this, this incredible ability for many things to cascade and go wrong one after the other and kind of take out all of your contingencies or make your contingencies irrelevant. That I think is something that I really took away from, from reading the book is an understanding of confronting the worst possible outcome not just of any particular thing going wrong, but of a series of things going wrong. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's the same with, with, you know, almost any airline disaster, for example, or, or, um, you know, failures of space technology. It's all, it's never, it's never one thing. It's always, you know, this, as you say, it's this cascade of problems that, that nobody ever envisaged happening. I think as well, one of the, the things that I'll take away after having read the book is how it is incredibly easy for humans to get used to anything. Um, it's quite easy for us to think about new technology or complex technology or risky technology and respect it and kind of walk around it and be very methodical and careful with it at first. But anything gets routine after a while. And it is so difficult to maintain that kind of high amount of respect for the thing you're trying to control over an extended period of time. It's almost the more stuff doesn't happen, the more things kind of don't go wrong or don't go wrong in a bad enough way that that it becomes, uh, that it kind of sticks in your mind a bit, it, it almost kind of invites you to pay less attention to it. And, and humans are very susceptible to that. Yes. Familiarity breeds contempt. Mm. That was a very succinct way to put what took me a whole minute. <laughs> Great job. <laughs> That's why you have written an excellent book. And I have sat here and asked you questions about it and had an excellent conversation. Adam, thank you so much. It is, I really enjoyed the book. Um, just a, a quick uh, question, actually, that comes mostly from me. You, the book, reading the book is as much a, a, an experience of, of reading, I think thriller is too strong a word, but it, it definitely has a strong narrative. And there's this sense of suspense that you've built into the book, which I, I found really fascinating to read through because it, it's a thing that already happened. I mean, we sort of know the outcome. So why did you want to approach 
writing the book with such a strong narrative rather than a kind of more factual, and this is going to sound bad, but factual based history where you're just kind of hitting the kind of historical facts. But there's a lot of in your book, you, there's a lot of narrative and emotion and a sense of what people were thinking at the time that really gives it, um, I felt reading through it gave it, gave me, gave it more weight because I had a sense of what was at stake in a different way. Oh, well, I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed it on that level. I mean, the, 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 um, thank you. The, I mean, the simple answer is that, you know, I wanted to write the book I wanted to read. Um, I wanted to write a history book that was structured and um, had the tone of a thriller. And, um, you know, I wanted to make it extremely accurate, but I also wanted to, to make it very readable, you know, and the, the, I have, I have kind of cheap tastes. I like to read, you know, Elmore Leonard books. I like, you know, I, I like crime fiction. I like, and you know, before I wrote this book, I wrote a lot of, of, of crime reporting, true crime reporting. So those things really, fed into my approach to the book but what you're talking about about what's at stake was the was what was really at the heart of what i wanted to do because you know there have been other books written about this subject and a lot of kind of magazine articles and newspaper pieces have come out in the 30 years since it happened and what to my mind they they all failed to do was to show what the experience was like for the people involved um you know, the, the limited number of Western accounts that have been written, the people involved are always just names on a page and often kind of to a Western reader, kind of incomprehensible names on a page because there's, there's a lot of consonants in those names and they're, they're all Slavic names and it's hard to tell one person from another. And, you know, um, and, but as soon as I began meeting eyewitnesses to what had happened and I, and I began reporting on it for a magazine story back in 2006, you know, I, I quickly realized that these, People were not the sort of, um, you know, s- s- victims of the Soviet system that I, I had expected them to be as a result of my own absorption of, of Western propaganda about the USSR, um, that I'd taken on when, you know, I was 17 when this happened. So I, you know, I grew up during the Cold War and I approached it with my own conception of the Soviet Union that was just informed by, you know, what I read about when I was a kid, which was, which was just, which was strongly covered by propaganda, I think. And so when I started to, to meet these people, I realized that they were, you know, they'd been much like I was at that time and they had the same sort of hopes and expectations and, and, um, and dreams of the future and, and enthusiasm for, for working in a field of high technology and, and embracing the future. Um, and so I, I, I really wanted to, to do what I could to bring those people to life. And, and part of the most important part of that to me was to was to show what life in Pripyat and life for these people who worked in the nuclear industry was like before the accident. And in that way, show what they really lost uh, in the accident, not merely the trauma and the, and the terrible experiences they went through on the night of the accident, but to show that they had had these, in many cases, quite wonderful lives before the accident, not you know, drab victims of a socialist experiment. But, you know, the, the vivid experiences of, of young people looking towards the future in a place that they love living in. And, and it's that that I wanted to, to be part of the driver of this narrative as much as, you know, cliffhanger episodes about whether the meltdown would really contaminate the Nipah. There is definitely 
in the book a sense of time and place that I find is often absent, especially from history books that focus on something of scientific relevance. So your book contains a lot of fascinating detail about um, the the Soviet Union and the history, and also just the 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 core science of what's happening, including a lot of detail around the flaws in the reactor design. Which, uh, as someone who's really interested in the science, I also really appreciated. Um, but primarily, what I found that drew me into the book was an understanding of a, a sort of an intuitive understanding of time and place, and an ability to kind of put myself into that place next to the person who seemed to be experiencing it in real time. And that I found very effective to understand in a real visceral way what was at stake, as you said, which I find sometimes is missing when I read these kinds of of kind of basic history books. Um, so I, I really appreciate you putting the attention and the effort into creating the narrative and being able to build that reality as a reader, I found it incredibly valuable in order to really understand what had happened. Oh, thank you. I mean, the, the, the fact is that I mean, almost everybody I spoke to had a quite incredible, amazing story. Um, and a lot of the work of approaching the narrative in the first place was to make the difficult decisions about which of those people I could afford to include and whose stories had to be sort of left on the cutting room floor. And there are a lot of people whose, whose experiences were quite remarkable, uh, who, who never even made it into the book as a footnote. Do you have anyone in particular, if they happen to be listening, which I'm sure they're not, you would want to, you would want to highlight as a story that you wish you could have included? Um, and there's one guy in particular who, who, whose name is Georgi Reitman, um, who was a, I think there's a, he's included in the book where, uh, I'm describing what it was like to operate the reactor before the accident. And, and one reactor operator sits down for his first day at work and says, uh, what is this expletive, expletive? And what is it doing in civilian operation? Um, and that's, that's, that's Georgi who, who came to the plant having been cashiered from the Soviet Navy where he was a reactor room operator for many years. Um, as a result of a purge, an anti-Semitic purge within the Soviet Navy. Um, and he then went on after the accident to, to become the person who was responsible for looking after the sarcophagus, um, in the, in the years after the accident and after the cleanup was completed and, and hiring people to look after it. And, and he told me this wonderful story about how it became impossible to find qualified personnel prepared to work there and so he eventually just started like taking people off the street and and, and hiring people who were street sweepers and stuff to come and to come and work <laughs> with him there because because nobody wanted to <clears throat> um and and he is a kind of he's he is an amazing guy very has a very fascinating story and, and in the end you know barely makes an appearance in the book and there were there were many people like him well, sir, it's a fantastic book, and I thank you very much for writing it and also very much for uh, coming on to the show today and talking to me about it. Really, really interesting story and a great book. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. And if you want to learn more about Adam Higginbotham or his book, Midnight in Chernobyl, The Untold Story of the World's Greatest Nuclear Disaster, as usual, we have links you can click in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is listener-supported. 
You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.